We come this morning to a service of worship in which our hearts are full with the love of Christ. I want to mention to you that we, this weekend, had a wonderful elder and deacon retreat. I thank you for those of you who are praying for us and our time. I mentioned to the men as we gathered together to end our time yesterday afternoon at Ozark Conference Center that I've been to about 15 elder retreats now in my life, and I can confidently say that it was the greatest retreat I've ever been a part of. We were able to speak honestly and forthrightly and lovingly about all of the strengths and weaknesses of our fellowship and gave each and every one of us the measure of our own sinfulness and yet our own resolve to make sure that we are shepherding the flock as God would have us to. And it was glorious. It was tremendous. And our commitment to you as elders, pastors, and deacons is to shepherd you in a way that you would be pleased and that God would be most glorified. And so we thank you for praying for us and our time together. I also want to mention my commendation for what Dr. Rick Houck said about uh, those two volumes by Pastor Curtis Thomas. I mentioned to the folks in the first service that when I was candidating here to become the pastor of the Bible Church, I went for the very first time to meet at Richard and Cindy Fullenweider's home with the pastoral search committee, and we spent about three hours together there asking me questions about myself and my ministry. And as we were through, we were having some refreshments, and I was talking with Curtis. I really didn't know Curtis that well. We just met prior to that meeting, really, and I was talking with him, and he said, I'd like to ask you a question. What books, what Christian literature would you say has most impacted your Christian life? And I gave him a list of some authors and some books that had been very influential, and one of the books I mentioned was a commentary on Romans called Romans, an Interpretive Outline by Steele and Thomas, not knowing that I was talking to one of the authors. <laughs> and he said, well, that's a great blessing to me. And I said, why do you say that? And he said, because I'm one of the authors of that book. And I picked myself up off the floor, <laughs> and I said, I can't believe this. This is a tremendous volume. In fact, it was one of my seminary-required texts in the Romans class that I was taking and 15 years ago, I guess now, or 16 years. And, and so, believe me, the Lord used that connection to cement my desire to come to the Bible Church of Little Rock. So, Curtis, thank you, brother, for your ministry in my life. It has been a blessing for over 35 years, as Rick said, and the shelf life of a Christian book these days is less than a year. So for an enduring book like that, over 35 years, I commend it to you. You can pick up a copy today. Well, I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Men, do you have your seat belts on? We've spent, over the last two times in our study of the book of Colossians, speaking about the wives and their responsibility to submit themselves to their husbands as is fitting in the Lord, as Colossians 3.18 tells us. And now we need to turn the corner. 
We need to give you the balanced perspective of what the Word of God says regarding the role of the Christian husband. We could entitle this message this morning, The New Husband in Christ. The New Husband in Christ. Frankly, we live in a day when the home is under a ferocious attack. Almost everything that one reads or hears, frankly, is an assault on God's simple yet profound command. A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In our society, as you know, from any cursory understanding of what is around us, same-sex marriages, divorces, infidelity, loveless unions are so common today that we've frankly become dulled in our senses to them. They're so rampant, and yes, for so many of us it is blasé. We're no longer shocked at what we see, and it becomes very commonplace. And when men treat women in a very demeaning way, or when husbands do not love their wives in a biblical understanding, we're often, frankly, not surprised. We're not shaken, for instance, when women try to be more masculine than feminine and when men try to be more feminine than masculine. It is simply an accepted part of our culture. Even recently, someone said, every man plays the fool once in his life, but to marry is playing the fool all of one's life. That's the common sentiment of the day. Marriage is to be rejected. It is to be scorned. And frankly, even if someone weren't scorning or rejecting it, their drab existence would be that marriage for them is something to be endured. I'm reminded of a little seven-year-old girl who had just seen the movie Cinderella and was testing her neighbor lady's knowledge of the story. And the neighbor lady was anxious to impress the little girl that she knew about the story and said, Oh, I know what happens at the end. What? asked the girl. Well, Cinderella and the prince live happily ever after, to which the little girl answered, Oh, no, they didn't. They got married. Well, that's very common in our day. People will often hear something like that, and we laugh and chuckle, and it's cute, but it has the wrong message, doesn't it? Well, beloved, the only possible solution to our decaying culture is to return to the Word of God and seek its solution to our dilemma. And that is what we're going to do this morning. Colossians 3.19 Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. It took us two messages to get through verse 18. The Lord only knows how many messages it's going to take us to get through this. Because frankly, men, we are lagging far behind. We need help. And Paul, who I do not share his gift, obviously, in an economy of words that are profound and unparalleled in their simplicity, shows us the divine standard for marriage in one verse. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Frankly, men, we have some catching up to do. 
You hear constantly in the church that wives must submit, submit, submit. But we simply haven't heard the balance of the other side. Husbands, love your wives. Well, that's exactly what is going to occupy our time this morning and next Lord's Day and who knows after that what the proper God-ordained balance is in the discussion of Christian marriage. The outline of our text is really very simple. Two points. The positive command, love your wives, you husbands, and the negative prohibition. Do not be embittered against them. Very simple, very short, very concise, but power-packed. Paul says that there is something that you absolutely must do with no option. Love your wives. And that there is something that you absolutely must avoid at all costs with no option. Avoiding the bitterness of a marriage relationship. Now, I could very easily, and so many often do, and I think tragically so, simply teach the positive command and the negative prohibition by giving you all kinds of illustrations and stories and accounts of those who have loved their wives. And to be sure, some of them are challenging. We'll even give you a few of those. But The bottom line is that as an expository preacher, I must give you what is the context and the background behind Paul's words. Because I would say if we don't understand those things, we will not understand the impact of what Paul was saying to these people and therefore the impact for our own lives as well. So I want to give you the context of this passage. I sort of introduced it to you when we talked about the wives, but I want to re-remind you of it, especially for some of you who were not with us. What would the Colossians themselves, as new believers, understood when Paul wrote these words to them? When Paul says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them, what would they understand? What would their worldview be? What would their society be saying about such a statement? What, it, what would have been the training, the habits that would have been formed over many, many years as these adults have now come to faith in Christ and are hearing these words from the Apostle Paul? Well, let me give you a little history lesson. Under Roman law, as I've mentioned to you before, there was what was called the pater familias. And that was the father as head of the family idea. If someone were said in that society to be a pater familias, it would mean that the father was the autocratic head of the home. And in that culture, he had an absolute power over the other members of the family. In Latin, it's called patria potestis. He had utter rule, utter control, and in that society, my friends, it was bad. It was very bad. In fact, it was so bad that the husband, the father, the head of the house had such a control that he was the legal arm of the law in and of himself. If he so desired, for whatever reason, if he wanted to put away his wife secretly to divorce her, or publicly for that matter, he had every right to do so with no reprisal whatsoever. No one would come to him from the government, 
No one would come to him from the police department and take him away, and no one would question him. He had utter control over everything that happened in his home. And even with his children, if he desired desperately a son to carry on his name for future generations, and he had a daughter instead, he had the legal right to kill that little baby. He was patria potestis. He was in charge. He had everything at his disposal. He was merciless if he wanted to be. And frankly, even though there were some variations in the Jewish law context from the Greek, the Hellenism of the time, the Greek-speaking Jews, frankly, were living under that law. And so they were very much influenced by that culture. In fact, all of the Mediterranean world at that time were under those household regulations that brought us a, an essentially patriarchal family. You say, well, what's wrong with that? Isn't the father supposed to be in charge? Isn't he supposed to be the head of the house? Yes, but with the biblical criteria of love and gentleness and patience. And frankly, that was unknown in that society. It was unknown. It was so unknown, in fact, that when Paul comes to them with a positive command... Love your wives. They wouldn't understand what he's talking about. They wouldn't understand it. Because the father, the husband, was so much in charge that if he decided to be an autocrat, if he decided to be capricious and arbitrary in his decision making, if he wanted to say one thing one day and another thing so contradictory the, uh, the next day, that was no problem. Everybody just had to toe the line. If he wanted to strike them, he could. If he wanted to treat his wife as a piece of meat, as a piece of machinery, as a non-entity, as a non-person, that was his right to do. And frankly, that was the culture of the day. And can you imagine how Paul's command would have come across in that kind of culture? Husbands, love your wives. Love them. They're not a piece of meat, he's saying. They're not just a piece of machinery, a non-person who's supposed to do what she's told and nothing else. I, I, if I were in that culture, would assume that there would be some who would say, Paul, are you telling me that instead of what I've been trained to do, instead of what I have seen all my life, you're telling me that now there is a love and a nurturing and a caring and a cherishing for this woman while she's just a servant? She's just a slave. She's just like a piece of furniture in the house. If I move it over here, they do that. If I move it over there, they should do that. You know, there was another interesting factor in the history of Paul's context here. And that history was that beginning in verse 18 all the way through to chapter 4, verse 1, you have these household rules. Wives, be subject to your husband. Husband, love your wives. Children, be obedient to your parents. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Slaves in all things, obey your masters. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness. And that is a section that is commonly called a house table or a house rule or a house governing. Very common in the day. If you were to look at secular sources in the Hellenism of the time, the Greek-speaking Jews had rules and regulations that governed their society just like we do today. Laws, rules, regulations. And in all that everyone can find in the extant literature of the time, there was not one listing in any house rule in the secular culture around the time that ever told a husband that he was to love his wife. Never. It was totally foreign. 
There was no house regulation that told a husband that he was to love his wife instead of mistreating her if he so chose. Now, this was brand new. Paul was saying, listen, if you want to know what is the distinctively Christian element of marriage, men, I'm going to tell you what it is. Love your wife. And I'm sure some of them would probably respond by saying, well, I, I do love my wife. I love her with that sexual kind of love because we procreate and then we bear children and then those children keep my name going in the generation and so that I can be respected in the gate. And Paul, I'm sure, would respond by saying, listen, what I'm telling you is not just a, a sexual love, which is really no love at all if it's not a caring and a nurturing and a loving in all ways. Uh, that's just a physical act for which children are the result. In fact, if Paul wanted to, if he wanted to emphasize the sexual love of that relationship, he would have used the word eros, eroticism. He would have used the, the acceptable love of a marriage relationship in the sexual arena. But that's not the word he used. If he wanted to use the word that described a friendship and intimacy of companionship, he could have used the word phileo, from which we get our English term Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. He could have used that very easily, but that's not the word he used here. The word he used here is agape, sometimes in our culture called agape. Agape, it's, it's the verb that describes the love of choice, the love of choice, the love of the will. It's sometimes used synonymously and interchangeably with phileo, but in the context, it will provide for you what kind of love is being referred to. And did you know that when the love of God is said to be for His children, it is more often than not the word agape? It's God's love of choice. It's the love of His will. It's a love and an esteem and a goodwill toward another person. It is the love of of supreme regard. It's a, it's a high and holy kind of love. And Paul says, I'm not just talking about an erotic love. I'm just, I'm just not talking about a friendship love, a companionship love. I'm talking about a supreme love, a love of your choice, a love of your will. He's saying, I'm telling you that you ought to encapsulate in all of the love that you have all of those elements and even more. It's everything about what true love is. That's what you're supposed to give and be for your wife. That's really what he says in Ephesians 5 in the parallel passage. He says, I'm going to tell you what kind of love this is. It's the love that Christ had when he gave his life for the church, for his bride. It's the love of a cross. It's the love of sacrifice. It's the love of service. It's the love of ministry. And Paul's use of the verb tense, by the way, is extremely important. I'm not trying to give you a Greek lesson necessarily, but I do want to tell you that this is impactful. You say, how so? Here it is. Second person plural, present active imperative. What does that mean? Second person plural. That means all of us. All of us. You husbands. You husbands. You are involved in a present tense reality of loving your wife. What does that mean? Continuous. It doesn't stop. It is a habit. It is a habit that you form over years. Active. What does that mean? That means that you are the one doing it. 
It is your initiative. And it is imperative. That means that it is not an option. That's what he's saying. You husbands, as a continual, habitual maintaining of love for your wife with no option, make it your pattern. Choose to love your wife. That's what he's saying. Choose to love. Make it your ongoing practice to choose to love your wives. You can say it like this. I will, as a conscious commitment of my choices, maintain an unceasing care and loving sacrificial service to my wife. That's what he's asking for. No, that's what he's commanding. He's saying, this is not an option for a Christian. And can you imagine the culture? Can you imagine what would have been cross-grain in the culture? I mean, he's already said one verse earlier, Wives, I want you to submit yourselves to your husband. And the wives would say, Paul, I'm in the lowly place of submission already. I can't do anything. I can't think anything. I'm constantly cowering at the overlordship of my master. And now you're telling me that the distinctively biblical idea is to submit myself to my husband? What gives? Paul says, transcendently above your culture, it is still true that the Bible teaches that wives are to submit themselves to their husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And as a beautiful biblical balance, he comes right around in the next verse and he says, and husbands... I don't want to leave you out. Here's your responsibility in the relationship. You are to love your wives and you are not to be embittered against them. And boy, that would have hit some men right between the eyes. They would have said, now wait a minute. Never have I ever read anything about this before, Paul. Are you saying that this is actually one of the distinctive marks that defines what a Christian is all about? And Paul says, you got it. That's it. That is what it means to define a person as a believer in Jesus Christ because he's different from the world. You know, in essence, what Paul is saying here, what he's saying is, this is our evangelistic opportunity. This is evangelism at work because our culture says that if a man wants to do anything he wants to his wife, he can do it without any fear of response from anybody else. And when a wife submits to him, even with the culture being that way, someone's going to come along and say, how do you do that? How can that happen? And she can say, because it's right to do. Because it's what God has called. It's my place. It's what God does when He does a work in my heart that even though it's unfair and even though it hurts and even though there is pain and even though there might be disappointment, it is what God has called me to do and He'll give me grace to bear. And when a husband comes along and says, Hey, Charlie. Hey, Fred. Hey, Tommy. Hey, Bill. You and I are co-workers together and we see each other every day and I know that you've seen a change in my life because I see the way that I used to treat my family and I see the way that you're treating your family now but I've told you I've become a Christian. And the Word of God has come to me and it says that I'm to love my wife and Fred and Charlie and Tommy and Billy look at him like he has come from the ozone. What? Love? They're not even, they're not even your equal. They just need to do what you tell them to do. That's our culture. That's the way it is. 
And you can come along and say, not for a Christian, not for a believer. In fact, let me tell you that there is even an analogy that the Bible gives that explains how I'm to do it. And it happens to be none other than the Savior that I've received. He loved his bride, the church. He loved me. He loved his church, that he sacrificed himself. And the word that's used is the same word that I'm supposed to employ when I love my wife. That's radical, my friends. That's radical. And it's godly. It's beautiful. It's a wonderful balance. It's a wonderful balance when there's a respectful submission on the part of the wife and a loving leadership on the part of the husband. There's nothing like it. There's absolutely nothing like it on the earth. It's God's design. It's His plan. It's His purpose. William Hendrickson says, This love, this love that I've just spoken of, this love acts as a moderating influence upon the husband's exercise of authority. It is true that the primary responsibility for the final decision with respect to a matter rests with the husband. But the method of reaching that decision leaves ample room for mutual deliberation and gentle persuasion in the course of which perhaps at times the husband's tentative conclusion may finally prevail. At other times the wife, her partner, having come to see that she was right. Thus, the husband, having fully committed himself to the principle that his love for his wife must be a true reflection of the deep sacrificial love of Christ for the church, acts toward her as a man of understanding, is never harsh or cross, but is considerate toward her and honors her in every way. In such a marriage, each seeks to please and benefit the other and to promote the other's welfare. And this is not physically and culturally true, but also, in fact, mainly spiritually true. Oh, it's true in every way. Beautiful balance. This is what Paul is saying. I'll show you the balance. Dr. Robert Sizer, in his book, Mortal Lessons, Notes on the Art of Surgery, tells of performing surgery to remove a tumor and of necessity, severing a facial nerve, leaving a young woman's mouth permanently twisted in palsy. In Dr. Sizer's own words, quote, Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to do well in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they? I asked myself. He and this wry mouth I have made, who gaze at and touch each other so generously, so greedily. The young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this? She asks. Yes, I say it will. It is because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth. And I, so close, can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that their kiss still works. My friends, that's love. When you twist your will, when you twist your own choices to accommodate to hers, to show her that your marriage works. That's what it means. Ecclesiastes 9.9 probably says it better than any other place in all the Scripture. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life which He has given to you under the sun. For this is your reward 
in life. This is your reward. You look at your marriage as a reward or a burden. Do you say to yourself, but I've been wounded too much. There's been too much pain. There's been too much sin. There's been too much that has been done against me that I cannot, I will not forgive. The love is gone. I don't have the feelings anymore. Men, get that word out of your vocabulary. It is not a feeling. Love is a choice of your will. It is a choice of your life. You are choosing not to love, and that, my friends, must be confessed as a sin and forsaken by the Spirit of a holy God. You must say, yes, in reality, in all honesty, my love may be gone, but it was gone, it was fleeting from me because I made the choice. Yes, I may have been sinned against. Yes, there may be great pain. Yes, there might very well be disappointment. But God is greater than those things. His grace will abound where sin has abounded. God can give us this love of choice, and He has. And not only has He given it to us, He's commanded us to live it out. It's here. We've arrived, men. It's here. Love your wives. Last night when I was preparing to finish this message, I was reading, rereading the Song of Solomon to see if I might receive any insight. Do you think I found any? Song of Solomon 1-7. Song of Solomon 3-1. Song of Solomon 3-2. Song of Solomon 3-3. Song of Solomon 3-4. They all say this phrase, O you whom my soul loves. Isn't that so beautiful? O you whom my soul loves. Not feelings, not the fleeting and passing emotions of time, not the ebb and flow of the difficulties of life, but a commitment of the will, a twisting of my lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that our kiss still works. Oh, you whom my soul loves. Don't allow your marriage to be what Howard Hendricks once said. Marriage is sometimes the dialogue of the death. Don't let it be so. Don't let it be so. Drink and imbibe deeply, O lovers. Song of Solomon 5.1 Drink and imbibe deeply. You remember Genesis 24.67? Then Isaac took Rebekah and she became his wife and he loved her. I love what the King James Version speaks of it. And he was sporting with her. You know that's the first mention of sports in the Bible? I love sports. I love the opportunity to love my wife in every way. Not just with a conjugal relationship, but with a sacrificial time, with a a pleasure of conversation, with a companionship, and through the pain and disappointment of sin against me or my sin to her, an enduring, unbending commitment of the covenant that we signed with our lives. Didn't we say that when we took that oath? When we stood before the preacher and when we said, this is what I will commit myself to do, to love her in sickness and in health till death 
do us part. Now Jacob loved Rachel. So he said, I will serve you seven years, Laban, for your younger daughter, Rachel. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. Seven, seven years? Ah, just like tomorrow. Not a problem. Days pass so quickly. But you say, I don't, I don't love that way. I'm going to be honest with you, Lance. I don't love that way. That's not what's in my heart. Two things. I appreciate your honesty. Secondly, confess it as sin. Confess it as a sin. We, we could go around the barn. We, we could talk about a lot of things. We, we could give a lot of reasons. We could come up with a lot of byproducts and results. But the bottom line is that the negative prohibition says this. Do not be embittered against her. Positive command, lover with an agape love. Negative prohibition, do not be embittered against her. And boy, this would, this would just have rattled the culture. I mean, Paul just a revolutionary. I mean, he just said, hey guys, I know that's what you've been trained to do. I know that's what your society says. But I'm telling you right now, if you want to have a guilt-free marriage, do not be embittered against her. You say, what? How can you have a guilt-free marriage by, not, by staying away from bitterness? I'll tell you, that same word for bitterness that's used here in the noun form is used in Hebrews 12:15. It says this, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. It is a guilt-edge guarantee. You mark it down right here. If you allow bitterness in your relationship with your wife, you will have trouble. If you want to eliminate trouble in your relationship, even though you can't control what the other person does, you can control your own actions and your own thoughts. And when you control them and do not allow, allow bitterness to fester up within you, that trouble will dissipate and you will sense the pleasure of God Himself. You will. It's a promise in God's Word. 1 Corinthians 10.13 Let no testing overtake you, but such as is common to man. Is that what it says? No, it says, no testing has overtaken you. There is no test, there's no temptation, there's no problematic relationship, no marriage issues that are so great that any one person can come along and say, but you don't know my story. You don't know what's going on. You've never met her. You don't know what she's like. She has a different face when we come to the church, but it's very much different when we go home. She's lively and talkative when we're away. She's like a stone at home. Here's God's Word. Even if that were true, that is not a temptation that you are commanded to fall to. You can resist it. Because God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tested beyond what you are able. But with the testing, He will provide a way of escape so that you don't have to sin, so that you may be able to bear up underneath. And you can do it. And instead of bitterness, you can have love and joy, maybe not in the very essence of the relationship at all times, but you can have the joy to know that when you are obedient to God, you are being pleasing to God. And that, my friends, being, brings joy. It does. 
And boy, wouldn't have that been a message for the characteristic, characteristically tyrannical overlords of the day called husbands. Oh boy, what a, what a truth. Can you imagine some of them who grabbed a hold of that and said, Paul, I see it. I see it. I see what I can do now. I can respond in this way and I can be evangelistic in my life and I can love the wife of my covenant. You see, that's why God had an indictment on the people of Israel in Malachi 2. He said, this I have against you. And they said, what is it? And he said, you have dealt treacherously with the wife of your youths. You've even divorced some of them to marry a foreign god. I hate divorce. He says, don't deal treacherously with the wife of your covenant. That's applicable to us today, isn't it? It's as one person said, the rule of love is always better than the love of rule. Hey, there are a lot of people in our world, myself included, that sometimes love to rule. But it's a whole lot harder to learn the rule of love. But does not 1 Corinthians 13 say, Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love bears all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. It's a truth from the Word of God. It is a promise to be imbibed in your heart. And when you do it, you have a joy unspeakable. In our Friday morning doctrine and devotion, as we will come to it in time, Wayne Grudem says these wonderfully wise words, When husbands begin to act in selfish, harsh, domineering, or even abusive and cruel ways, they should realize that this is a result of sin, a result of the fall, and is destructive and contrary to God's purposes for them. To act this way will bring great destructiveness in their lives, especially in their marriages. Husbands must rather fulfill the New Testament commands to love their wives, honor them, be considerate of them, and put them first in their interests. The other extreme from being a domineering tyrant is to be entirely passive. And I would dare say that's probably even the greater struggle for most of our men today. It's passivity. It's a lack of leadership. And I'll tell you what, next Lord's Day, I'm going to give you three how-to's and one of those is to be a leader. And we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 16, 13, where Paul says, act like men. It's time that men act like men. And that's what we're going to talk about. That's the how-to of this morning. And when Grudem says that, he says that the domineering tyrant may turn into be the entirely passive kind of man. He fails to take initiative in the family, in colloquial terms, to be a wimp. In this distortion of the biblical pattern, a husband becomes so considerate, quote-unquote, of his wife that he allows her to make all the decisions and even agrees when she urges him to do wrong. Note the behavior in Adam. Often such a husband is increasingly absent, either physically or emotionally, from the home and occupies his time almost exclusively with other concerns. Husbands, therefore, should aim for loving, considerate, thoughtful leadership in their families. And to that I say a hearty amen. Men, myself included, we've been caught up short this morning. And we need to respond. Let me ask you two final questions as we close. One, with regard to the positive command, are you consciously, habitually choosing to love your wife? It's an act of the will. Secondly, if you are not, don't sin additionally by becoming embittered against her. 
And next Lord's Day, we're going to talk about the actual practical how-to of being a lover, which we're going to look at Ephesians 5, being a learner, we're going to look at 1 Peter 3, 7, and being a leader, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 16, 13. And those three texts will provide for us the how-to of loving your wife as Christ loved the church. Song of Solomon 7.10 I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Do you desire your wife in that way? As we close this morning, I want you to do something. It's very unusual. We did it in the first hour to great confirmation. You know, often when I preach, there is little opportunity to immediately respond to the message. But I don't want this just to be a monologue. I want this this morning to be a dialogue because if you're like me, men, there's some confession that needs to occur and a seeking of forgiveness. I challenge every one of our men this morning for a few moments. We have a few moments. I ended with a couple of minutes to spare so that you could turn to your wife. I challenge you that if you have not been living as a husband who has been emblematic of Christ's relationship to his church, that you would confess that to your wife, even now. And that you would forsake those things, ask her to pray for you, hold you accountable, seek out the fellowship and love and determination of other brothers so that you might do these things which are proper and godly and right. And you say, if I do that, I will expose myself to her. And that's not easy. You're right. You're right. But it's the right thing to do. It's the perfect fulfillment of this command. If you have done that with your wife, and if you are increasing and excelling, allow her in that time together to affirm you in that. That would be a wonderful thing to hear your wife say, I'm so pleased with what is going on in our relationship, and I can't wait for us to grow more together spiritually. For some of you young people and some of you singles, you say, not applicable. Well, that's true. But you know what? You need to see modeled in those who are married these kinds of things. And so I want you to bow your head and I want you to pray for those people as they talk to their wives. So I want you to do that right now.